0: in him. Would you join me in prayer? Father, thank you for the important lesson that Luke has to share with us. Actually, your spirit through Luke has to share with us about the importance of unity in the church and how the early church dealt with such an important issue. Help us to learn from them. Help us to hear your voice today. Help us to Apply your word to our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Harmony in the church. And this is what we started to talk about last week in Acts chapter 6. We got through, I think, verses 1 and 2. That's what we started to talk about. Harmony in the church is crucial to evangelism and growth. It's crucial to evangelism and growth. Murmuring... Discontentedness, gossip, grumbling must not be tolerated in the church, but, but must we must be dealt with. And that's what we see in Acts chapter six is how the early church dealt with a problem of murmuring, with a problem of grumbling. We are going to see in this passage the problems. Spelled out in verse 1, then in verses 2 to 6, the solution that the apostles came up with, and then in verse 7, the result of their following their plan. Along the way, we'll learn how they dealt with problems in the early church. We'll learn about how they trusted Christ in their lives, how they made themselves vulnerable and by faith trusted God we'll see the flexibility of the apostles. We read in verse 1, In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Complaint means a murmuring or to grumble. That's what the idea there is. And we looked at that last week. John MacArthur astutely says in his book on church leadership, the best process for evangelism and growth, the process of maximum effect, is a corporate testimony. That is, in other words, you and I have an individual testimony. Every one of us has a testimony about how we came to know Jesus Christ as our Savior. Every one of us has that individual testimony But what MacArthur is pointing out is that churches have a corporate testimony. Churches have a corporate testimony. And so he says here, that is the greatest impact and attraction a local assembly can have upon its community is through a loving, positive, united, harmonious, spirit-filled, happy, confident, non-legalistic congregation. Wow! That's a tall order, isn't it? That's a tall order. Where do you find those kind of congregations, right? Loving, positive, united, harmonious, spirit-filled, happy, confident, non-legalistic. Who wouldn't want to be a part of that? Who wouldn't want to be a part of that? He goes on to say, Conversely, the worst process for evangelism and growth is a disharmonious, negative, gossipy, complaining, legalistic, disunited congregation. Unfortunately, our world sees much too much of that kind of church. Much too much of that kind of church. About every three or four months at DRBC, we have a welcome lunch. Uh, maybe many of you have been through a welcome lunch. If you haven't, let me give a little plug for Chris. The next one is July 25th. The next one is July 25th. So we'll have, if it's not already there, we'll have a sign up on the welcome desk for you to sign up to be a part of it. So that was just a little commercial. But the reason I mention Our Welcome Lunch is because one of the things we share in our Welcome Lunch is the core values of Del Rio Bible Church. The core values of Del Rio Bible Church. And one of the most important core values, and we spend uh, uh, quite a bit of time on it during the Welcome Lunch talking about it, one of the most important core values to our church is that we desire to work through issues and conflicts openly and honestly. We desire to work through issues and conflicts openly and honestly. We know how important it is. We know how important it is that a church takes takes, uh, seriously the issues of harmony, unity, being a united body, showing to the world the love that Jesus talked about. The early church had this problem with grumbling The Greek-speaking Jews grumbled against the Aramaic-speaking Jews, saying that their widows were not being taken care of properly. And there probably was some truth to that. There probably was some truth to that because there was always tension between these two groups, always tension between the native-born Hebraic-speaking Jews and the Hellenistic Jews from outside Jerusalem and Judea. Now grumbling is, a, is an issue that goes beyond the book of Acts and beyond the early church. Uh, many times the whole issue of grumbling is dealt with in the scripture. Paul deals with the issue of grumbling in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verses 6 to 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verses 6 to 11. Now, to give you the background to this, and and, uh, you can turn there or write it down for your study, the background is found in chapter 10, verses 1 through 5. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud, and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered over the desert. And then Paul says this, Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things often have people ask me, how am I supposed to use the Old Testament? What am I supposed to do with the Old Testament? Uh, I'm not uh, a part of the nation of Israel. I'm, I'm not national Israel. What am I supposed to do with the Old Testament? I'm not under the law. What am I supposed to do with the Old Testament? And I always direct them to 1 Corinthians 10. Because this is God's intention for you and for me in the church age as to how to use the Old Testament Paul said these things occurred as examples. What happened to the people of God in the Old Testament is exemplary, illustrative for you and for me and for our lives. And then Paul gives some examples. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and get up to indulge in pagan revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. All right, we understand that. We shouldn't be into idolatry. We should not commit sexual immorality. Verse 9, we should not test the Lord as some of them did and were killed by snakes. But verse 10, now think about this, folks. Verse 10, we've got idolatry, we've got sexual immorality, we've got testing the Lord. And look what Paul says in verse 10 and do not grumble. As some of them did. And that word translated grumble there in 1 Corinthians 10 is the same word translated complained against in Acts chapter 6 and verse 1. The same word. Do not grumble. The Old Testament people grumbled about food. They grumbled about God's choice of leadership. They grumbled about the bad report of the spies. They grumbled against God Himself. And Paul includes the sin of grumbling, grumbling along the side, alongside of some various serious sin. That's how important it is, folks. That's why I'm spending this time on it, because it's not just important to the book of Acts. It's not just important to the early church. It's not just important to the apostles. It is important to you and me today in the church. It is of crucial importance, because when there's murmuring and when there is grumbling, it disturbs the peace of the church. It causes people to pick up sides against each other. Issues cannot be resolved. It diverts the church from the most important mission, its witness. How can we witness to God's love without being loving to each other? It's an important topic. It's an important topic. And seeing how the early church dealt with it is important for us as well. well, we read back in Acts, we read verse 2. So the 12, and we looked at this last week, the 12 gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. There's our word diakonane, which means to serve, it means to serve. Minister, it means to raise a dust. That is, you're you're really working, serving at tables, that you're raising a dust on the table. So what did they propose? Verse 3, Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom, we will turn this responsibility over to them and we'll give our attention to prayer <clears throat> Excuse me, and the ministry of the Word. Now, there's a couple of things here and I wish I could go down every rabbit trail that's in this passage because I love going down rabbit trails. I love getting everything out of a passage just like squeezing an orange. You know, when you squeeze an orange, you want every bit of juice out of that pulp. You want nothing left. Every time I study this, I see all these people talking about how important it is, the ministry of the Word, how how the apostles understood. And it is important. Don't get me wrong. I've spent most of my life now teaching the Word of God. most important thing I've ever done other than my wife and family. And... Every time I see somebody teach this passage, they focus on the Word of God, and they forget about prayer. Isn't it interesting that prayer is right beside the Word of God? That's how important prayer is, and that's how easily you and I and commentators overlook prayer. But our message isn't about that this morning, so let's skip that rabbit trail and move down to the three qualifications that the apostles laid out for these men who would take care of this issue, who would be entrusted with taking care of this issue. What are the three qualities, the three qualifications? You'd think that they might say, well, we need somebody really good with a calculator. Right? We need somebody who can use a calculator. We need somebody who can count. Somebody good at math. That's not what they looked for. The emphasis, rather, in this passage is not on skills, not particular skills. The emphasis is on what? Don't be afraid. You know what it is. They've got to be filled with the Spirit. They've got to be filled with wisdom. And they've got to have a good reputation. What what are the requirements? They're not skills their character, their character. And that's still true today, that the most important qualifications are character qualifications, not skills. So many churches, it seems, pick their leadership on the basis of they're really visible in the community. They're popular, well-known people. They're successful businessmen. They've got status. And so many churches choose their leadership on that basis and wonder why they have problems. The qualifications for leaders in the early church laid out this early, before there's even elders and deacons who would come later, the qualification is character. Character. They were to be full of the Spirit, that is, filled by the Spirit under the control of the Spirit, letting the Spirit direct their lives and apply the Word of God to their situations. They had to be full of wisdom and they had to have a good reputation. Spiritual, wise, and known for those things. Spiritual, wise and known for those things now there's a there's a book that should be in every christian's library or their kindle whatever you guys do these days or your ipad there's a book that should be there and it's called spiritual leadership spiritual leadership and it's by j oswald sanders J. Oswald Sanders. It is a classic book on leadership. You will profit from that book, and it should be on every Christian's reading list. Spiritual leadership. Now, by the way, don't mix him up, J. Oswald Sanders. Don't mix him up with Oswald Chambers. You you guys know who Oswald Chambers is? You know, in the first service, I was surprised... Only a handful of people knew who Oswald Chambers was. Oswald Chambers is the one who was the source of the devotional book that many of us use and have used over the years called My Utmost for His Highest. My Utmost for His Highest. That is Oswald Chambers. So, that's number two book for today, my second recommendation. If you've, never, if you've never gotten that, you should get My Utmost for His Heist. But please, get the updated English version. By that I mean Oswald Chambers lived in the late 1800s, early 1900s. He died in 1914 in the midst of World War I. And he, um, he used a lot of expressions, of course, that change over time, and so language changes And so I recommend to you, if you're going to get it, get the new, uh, updated, with the updated English version. Uh, But let's get back to my original point, which is Spiritual Leadership by J. Oswald Sanders. It's a tremendous book on leadership. And he deals a lot with our passage, Acts chapter 6. He has a lot to say about it, and I want to share a good bit of what he says because I think it's overlooked today. I think it's unfortunately overlooked today. Jay Vernon McGee says this, unfortunately the average church today, and he's applying Acts 6 to pastors, he said unfortunately the average church today is looking for a pastor who is an organizer and a promoter, a sort of vice president to run the church, a manager of some sort. And McGee's conclusion is that is unfortunate. I would agree. That is unfortunate. So what are these spiritual qualities? Well, the first is being full of the Spirit, and Sanders has quite a bit to say about that, and he makes a a tremendous point. And I'll tell you the point, then I'll share with you you what he has to say, and uh, we'll, we'll talk about that. His point is that without spiritual leadership, a church cannot be spiritual. It's as simple as that. Without spiritual leadership, a church cannot be spiritual. It doesn't have the capacity to be spiritual. Let me share it with his words, share it with you in his words. Spiritual leadership, Sanders says, requires spirit-filled people. Other qualities are important, but to be spirit-filled is indispensable. The book of Acts is the story of people who established the church and led the missionary enterprise, it is of more than passing significance that the central qualifications of those who were to occupy even subordinate positions of responsibility in the early church was that they be persons full of the Holy Spirit. These officers were to be known for integrity and judgment, but preeminently for their spirituality." Then he says, a person can have a brilliant mind and possess artful administrative skill, but without spirituality, he is incapable of giving truly spiritual leadership. Later, he says, the spirit will not delegate authority into secular or carnal hands, even when a particular job has no direct spiritual teaching involved, All workers must be spirit-led and filled. Selection of leaders must not be influenced by worldly wisdom, wealth, or social status. The prime consideration is spirituality. When a church or missions organization follows a different set of criteria, it essentially removes the spirit from leadership. Wow! When a church or a Christian organization has a different set of qualifications, other than spiritual. It essentially removes the spirit of God from that organization. That's pretty sobering. That is pretty sobering. He mentions here that even for a job that has no direct spiritual teaching involved, These seven men that they chose were going to do what? What? I'll just wait. Serve tables. Serve tables. Distribute food. Distribute money. Serve tables. They weren't teaching, although two of them will find teaching later on in the book of Acts. to serve tables, the apostles said they had to be full of the Spirit and they had to be full of wisdom and have a good reputation. Sanders went on to say, as a consequence, that is when when an organization or a church chooses other other qualities rather than character, as a consequence, the Spirit is grieved and quenched and the result is spiritual dearth and death for that place. Selecting leaders apart from spiritual qualifications leads always to unspiritual administration. Appointing leaders with a secular or materialistic outlook prevents the Holy Spirit from making spiritual progress in that place. That's a pretty serious charge he says this about being filled with the spirit when the burning zeal of the early church began to draw converts at an extraordinary rate <clears throat> excuse me <clears throat> the holy spirit taught a wonderful lesson on leadership the church had too few leaders to care for all the needs especially among the poor and widows another echelon of leaders was needed brothers Choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit, and wisdom will turn this responsibility over to them. These new leaders were first and foremost to be full of the Spirit. Spirituality is not easy to define, but you can tell when it's present. It's the fragrance of the garden of the Lord, the power to change the atmosphere around you, the influence that makes Christ real to others. Spiritual goals can be achieved, he said, only by spiritual people who use spiritual methods. How our churches and missionary agencies would change if leaders were spirit filled. The secular mind and heart, however gifted and personally charming, has no place in the leadership of the church. Strong stuff, I know. Strong stuff. But it's absolutely essential. It's absolutely essential. The second qualification was that of full of wisdom. Sanders deals with wisdom as well in saying this. Wisdom is the faculty of making the use of knowledge. By the way, wisdom in the Bible is different than wisdom in the Greek sense of the word. Uh, It's not the accumulation of knowledge. Wisdom in the Bible is not the accumulation of knowledge. Wisdom in the Bible is, as one writer dubbed it, skill in living. It's the ability to take the Word of God and to apply it to our own hearts and to apply it to the people around us and apply it to the situations in which we find ourselves. That's what biblical wisdom is. Sanders says, Wisdom is the faculty of making the use of knowledge a combination of discernment, judgment, sagacity and similar powers but in the scripture right judgment uh, wisdom is right judgment concerning spiritual, spiritual and moral truth if knowledge is the accumulation of facts and intelligence the development of reason wisdom is heavenly discernment it is insight into the heart of things wisdom involves knowing god and the subtleties of the human heart More than knowledge, it is the right application of knowledge in moral and spiritual matters, in handling dilemmas, in negotiating complex relationships. Wisdom gives a leader balance and helps to avoid eccentricity and extravagance. If knowledge comes by study, wisdom comes by spirit filling. Then a leader can apply knowledge correctly. Full of wisdom was one of the requirements for even subordinate leaders in the early church. Character. Character. That's what they were to look for. Character. Not particular skills, but they were to look for to men of character even to wait on tables, even to distribute food. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. Well, the proposal that the apostles laid before the people pleased them And so, seven men were chosen. The interesting thing about these seven men who were chosen to deal with this problem, the Greek-speaking Jews complaining against the Aramaic-speaking Jews, what is interesting about the seven people charged with taking care of this issue is they all had Greek names. They all had Greek names. Do You see what the early church did to me, it was an exercise in faith, an exercise in trusting God. The Aramaic speakers placed the responsibility in the hands of the Greek speakers who did the complaining. It showed tremendous trust, vulnerability, and faith, and placed the, they placed the church's unity above their own needs. They placed the church's unity above their own needs. Well, these seven were commissioned by the apostles. They were prayed over. The apostles laid their hands on them. The practice of laying on hands signified uh, association or identification, it signified commissioning, it signifying granting of authority. Now, there's a question that I want to just deal with quickly, and that question is, and I, and I think in a, in a lot of ways it's a secondary question, are these seven men the first deacons? There are a lot of people who think that these seven men are the first deacons. Well, how do we answer that question first let me give you the three views There are basically three views about whether these seven by the way they're never called deacons in this scripture they're never called deacons the only designation that they have is they're called seven men (laughs) that's it seven men that's their title well those who think that these are the first deacons the evidence that they suggest is that the office of deacon is assumed in other places and especially Paul's letters Philippians 1:1 1, 1 would be an example 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 1 would be another example since the office of deacon is assumed in Paul's letters if it didn't originate here in Acts 6 then where and when did it originate? Where and when did it originate if it didn't originate in Acts 6? The second evidence that they put forward to support that is they put forward the fact that in verse 1, the word diakonia, which is, means dis- distribution, literally means service. And in verse 2, the word diaconane, which means to wait on tables usually used in the general sense of serving those two words are used therefore these have to be deacons but interestingly missing is the word diaconas which means what deacon it's never there it's not in the passage Cognate words are there, but the word diakonos, which is translated deacon, is never there. Diakonoi, which is the plural of diakonos, is not there. They're not called deacons. They're called seven men. That's the evidence. Uh, I don't particularly buy that. The second idea is that these seven were precursors to the office of elder, and they base that on passages like Uh, chapter 6 and chapter 11 of the book of Acts. They believe that the deacons of chapter 6 became the elders of chapter 11 who distributed the money that was collected for the saints at Jerusalem. So they believe, the second view, is that this is a precursor to the office of elder. The third view is that these were simply seven men who held a temporary position for the purpose of meeting a specific need. These were seven men who held a temporary position for the purpose of meeting a specific need. They were chosen for a particular task. They were not chosen to be in an office. They were chosen for a particular task. They were carrying out a temporary responsibility. And so the most you can say about them, and this is the position that I take uh, after much study over this, and you don't have to agree with me, it's okay. But the the best you can say is they illustrate the role and function of the office of deacons. They illustrate the role of function, the role and function of the office of deacon. But I do not think we can call them the first deacons. There are two offices that developed in the early church: that of elders and that of deacons were the two offices that developed in the early church. Most of the churches had elders who led them. Some of the churches were developed enough in their government that they had deacons who assisted the elders in the ministry. And uh, the, this idea we have today that elders, a, a lot of churches have a, an organizational chart that looks something like this. You have elders on this side and underneath elders it says spiritual, and you have deacons on this side, and under deacons it says monetary or money, financial, and that's how they divide up the responsibility. Well, number one, you mean money's not spiritual? I got news for you, folks. Money's one of the most spiritual things. How you handle your money and how I handle my money is one of the most spiritual things we will ever do. To say that's not spiritual is not to understand the scripture. The right organizational chart is this. Elders at the top who are over all aspects of the ministry and then deacons under elders who do whatever is assigned to them by the elders. Whatever the temporary need is, that's what they do. Now there's lots more to that. I mean that's based on the fact that in First Timothy 5:17 the elders give general oversight and direct the affairs of the church. Though some of them taught, some of them preached, they all didn't. Titus 1:9 they guarded and taught the truth. Acts 11 they supervised financial matters. Hebrews 13:17 they were responsible to give an account. First Peter chapter 5 and verse 2 they were act, to act like shepherds caring for the sheep. So you can see the ministry of elder was pretty widespread. Well verse 7. So the word of God spread, <clears throat> the numbers of disciples, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. One writer said As a result of the word of God increasing, it increased rather simply because the apostles had more time to devote to the word of God. Large numbers of people, the word of God spread, large numbers of people came to faith. Now, I just want to close with a real quick accounting of how the apostles dealt with this and how it is a model for dealing with grumbling and dealing with this kind of complaining in the church. Number one, they took a problem-solving approach rather than searching for someone to blame. Number two, they confronted the problem directly. They didn't talk around the edges or ignore it or pretend it wasn't there. Number three, they found the right people, spiritual people, wise people with a reputation for integrity. Number four, they trusted them with the work. And number five, we see that the apostles were willing to change to meet the situation. They weren't hidebound to do things in the same way all the time. Would you bow with me in prayer? Lord, thank you. Thank you for this great passage of scripture. Thank you for the reminder that those who would lead your church must be spiritual. Thank you that without spiritual leadership, a church cannot be spiritual. Thank you for this process that the apostles went through in order to answer this very difficult division in the early church one that went way beyond just the distribution of alms. But thank you that they've put before us a model to follow. And help us, Father, to be trusting, to be vulnerable, and to trust you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.